Money FM 89.3. Best of drive time. Under the radar. You're listening to Money FM 89.3, and it's now time for Under the Radar with me, Chua Tian Tian. Now, meatballs, that's what we are going to be talking about today. Now, when it comes to meatballs, the first thing that comes to mind would be perhaps chicken meatballs or those made from beef, pork, or even lamb served in soup or with a scoop of sauce. But how about a giant meatball made from flesh cultivated using the DNA of the extinct woolly mammoth? Well, that's a exactly what Australian cultured meat company Val launched in the Netherlands in late March. It said the meatball was made of sheep cells inserted with a singular mammoth gene called myoglobin. Now, according to the company, the gene is responsible for the aroma, colour and taste. Now, the mammoth meatball, by the way, has the aroma of crocodile meat and is currently not for consumption. Now, Val is not the first company that is eyeing the DNA of extinct animals. Biotech startup Colossal earlier wanted to de-extinct the dodo, while others are setting their sights on mammoth proteins. Now the question is, how much money is in it for firms to go the extra mile to look back into the past? Well, for more, let's speak to George Papo, co-founder of Val. George, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Great to have you on board. And George, many of us know of Val through your mammoth meatball, but I'm sure the business goes beyond that. So appreciate it if you could share with us your value proposition and business model. Absolutely. So we're a cultured meat company that's developing a range of different cultured meat products. What we believe at our absolute core is that the reason the billions of people around the planet choose to eat meat like I do is it's absolutely delicious and it is more satiating than anything else that you can be enjoying. And so our view has always been to change the behavior of people like us. We need to make meat that is even more tasty, nutritious, functional, and ultimately convenient than meat that comes from animals. And the way that we've been working towards that is by searching through nature, looking at the cells of a range of different species to identify those that are the easiest and most cost-effective to grow, but also those that produce the most nutritious and enjoyable food uh, coming out of the cell culture production process. And so. We believe long term that we're not going to just eat chicken, beef and pork, but we're going to expand that repertoire to entirely new forms of meat that we're going to think of as branded products the same way that you might buy breakfast cereal or many, many foods that you eat. They're just a brand. They're not Mm. uh, just a single agricultural commodity the way that we purchase meat today. Hmm, and we'll talk about why you're into uh, more exotic meats as well. But uh, let's just zoom in on your mammoth meatball launched at Nemo Science Museum in the Netherlands about a month ago, George. What was the rationale behind it? I'm sure it's more than a PR stunt. Tell us more about that. <laughs> so as a company that has set out to reinvent how we think about meats, we have this big challenge of how do we introduce this conversation to the mainstream? How do we get people talking about and rethinking, well, what does our meat look like in the future? And we thought, what better way to start this conversation than do something so truly outrageous that really gets people all around the planet having this conversation? And that's what led us to the Mammoth Meatball. It was really at its core a marketing stunt to start a conversation like the one that you and I are having right now. And we've very much succeeded in doing that. There's been an enormous amount of attention and press and dinner table conversations all around the world where people have said, hey, have you heard about this meatball? I guess you could kind of make anything now with some of these new technologies. And that's exactly why we set out to do this. 
Hmm, so it is a PR stunt after all, right? As you were talking about. Uh, but as far as we understand, uh, George Val is not the only company looking at reviving extinct animals or using the DNA of extinct animal. We will talk about mammoth later on, but Colossal wanted to de-extinct the dodo. Others are looking to, uh, you know, derive the proteins of extinct animals, say the mammoth. Why are firms going the extra mile to look back into the past? I mean, as a layman, I would assume that it would be more costly to look into DNA of those extinct animals and see how we can integrate them back into the present world compared to just uh, looking at your fish, your chicken and your, your pigs that perhaps, you know, you have more data available uh, at hand for you to use. So I can't really comment on the exact motivations of companies like Colossal and those that are looking back to uh, uh, produce specific proteins of extinct species. I suspect the reason that they're doing that is at least in part similar to why we made the mammoth meatball, which is there's something very uh, human about our curiosity about what exists that we can no longer see and interact with. There's a desire to go back to the past and understand what some of these things could look like. It's the same reason that Jurassic Park is such a popular uh, part of pop culture and it has remained so over the last three decades. There is something that really sparks our curiosity about looking to the past and bringing things back from it. Um, and so that to me is, you know, that's why we made the Mammoth Meatball. And if I were to guess, I would say the other companies have a similar uh, similar desire really to spark people's interest and spark people's curiosity. Mm. And George, don't mind me asking this as a person who has been quite focused uh, on the dollars and cents of things. How much more expensive it is to look into extinct DNA versus, you know, whatever that's available right now. And how much money is in it for you to decide, hey, this is something that is worthwhile for me? No doubt that curiosity plays a part in all of this, but how much money for you to determine that it is a worthwhile venture? So for us, we're not producing and have no intent to bring any products that contain extinct DNA to market for lots of different reasons. This for us is purely a way of starting a conversation all around the world. What we have spent a lot of time doing is looking through animal diversity that exists on our planet today growing the cells of many different species to understand how different are they, how easy are different species to move into scale up, to move into some of these larger volume processes that can land on everyone's dinner plate around the world. Um, but for us, the, uh, there is a, a limited utility today in going and reviving some of these species purely for the purposes of food. The question that we're really trying to answer with all of our R&D is how do we look through Earth's biodiversity as it is today to find the tastiest, the most nutritious and the cheapest possible meats that we could be producing tomorrow. Um, right now, extinct DNA doesn't play a part in that. That's not to say it won't in the future, uh, but for us today, it doesn't play a part. Hmm. Don't mind me just doing a quick follow-up on that. When we look into extinct DNA, uh, could it provide maybe more nutritious meats? Are there certain genes and those extinct animals that we just can't find and the meat products in the present world that we might need to bring them back someday? It's a great question. The um, short answer is not that I'm aware of. A lot of the components of muscle uh, at a very, very base genetic and biochemical level are very highly conserved. And so the reason that we could go back to an extinct genome like the mammoth and identify a myoglobin gene, which we know has very specific associations with the flavor, nutrition, and experience of food, is because it's so highly conserved. And if you look all the way from things like mammals to poultry to fish to mollusks and to insects, the 
underlying biochemistry of muscles and of motion are extremely similar across those. And because the parts of animals that we tend to consume or mostly consume are muscle, I don't expect there would be a huge value and a huge benefit in going back to some of those extinct species. Um, there may be some uh, some examples and some outliers, but I'm yet to see anything there, which is really, really compelling and justifies bringing that to market. Mm. So aside from extinct animals, I understand you are looking at a, a wide range of uh, unusual laboratory cultured meats, and that includes alpaca, kangaroo, peacock, crocodile, and even a hybrid of different species. So why is this the case? How does that help you position the company and the market for cultured meat then? If you think about really any of the branded foods you eat in the supermarket, so think about something like Oreos or any breakfast cereal, um, there's a huge number of different products that we eat today that we know intuitively what they are because of our experience eating them many times. And if you think about the ingredients of those products, there's a number of different derivatives from agriculture. So in something like an Oreo, you have wheat flour that's come from uh, wheat plants and you have sugar that's come from either sugar bean, uh, so sugar cane or sugar beets, depending on where in the world you are, along with cocoa from um, cacao pods. You have all of these different commodities which have been combined to create something that's distinct from any one of those things alone. That type of food processing, that type of food production has really only existed in consumers' minds for a little bit over a century. And what we believe, as cultured meat technology matures, we're going to see a very similar pattern happening in meat. You'll start to buy meat as purely brands, the way that you buy most foods. And many of those meat products are going to contain cells of different species to create foods that are tastier and more nutritious than any one animal can produce. And so that has been the driver for us in exploring and culturing the cells of many different species to understand the range of differences that they have in flavor, nutrition, functionality, uh, and growth economics as well. Mm, And you've got me very excited here, George. What is the um, ideal mix of different species or what is the one species that you would say that um, is the most cost efficient in terms of scaling up or in terms of commercializing? So this is a this is a question which we're constantly looking at and constantly re-answering. For us today, what we've seen is the first species that's crossed the threshold of being able to be scaled up for us is quail. Uh, that's definitely not the last. We have a number of other species which are quite close behind it, including some fish and some other uh, some other species as well. But for us, the first one that's met that threshold is quail. And um, the question you're asking: What are the most cost-effective? What are the most desirable to scale up? That's one we're going to be continually learning about and continuing, uh, continually answering over the next several years. Um, so I just don't have a definitive answer. That's one of our biggest and most important research questions at the moment. Hmm. If you're just tuning in, we're now in conversation with George Peppel, co-founder of Val. And uh, George, take us through what are the uh, regulatory hurdles involved when it comes to working with such exotic species uh, compared with your regular chicken or pig or cow? So all around the world, and we're currently going through this process in Singapore, Australia, and the United States, the regulators essentially ask us to tender all of our safety information around how we've derived, produced, and how we assure safety of these products. The scrutiny is very similar, whether you're working on an existing domesticated species or something which is less frequently consumed. Up until relatively recently, really in the last sort of 40 to 80 years, our diets and the meat that we consumed was much broader. If you think about 
what your grandparents or what your great grandparents would have eaten, they would have had less meat in total, but much more variety of the species they eat. And so there is a long history of consumption of foods like quail, of crocodile, of alpaca, um, buffalo. You can sort of take your pick, kangaroo as well. There's this huge range and lots of evidence that these things have been in our diet for a very long time. They're just less frequently consumed today uh, and they produce, uh, make up less volume of our total meat consumed today. And so what the regulators are looking for is the same type of risk management approach. How can we assure that the underlying cells that we're using are safe and are comparable to things that already have been in the human diet for many hundreds of years? How do we ensure our process is operated to an extremely high standard of safety? All of the operators are appropriately trained. We have the right quality control in place. And we have very clear specifications of what a safe product looks like on the other side. And so we share all of that information with regulators and there's a constant back and forth. And in the case of the Singapore Food Agency, we've been talking to them every week. Um, similarly with the Australian and the US food regulators, we've been speaking to them very, very regularly, ensuring we provide additional data with, uh, is needed and any updates or changes as we learn to operate these processes, um, production processes at larger and larger scales. Hmm. And uh, well, I understand Val is uh, not afraid of difficult conversations. So let's have a let's talk about a slightly more difficult topic, which Please. is the issue of patents. I believe in recent days, especially after the mammoth meatball, there has been some conversation about patents and how patents can be implemented. But uh, without going into specific events, how would the patents and IPs shape up the competitive landscape in the industry going forward? I'll share a little bit of my background with patents uh, to give a bit of context of my cynicism. Uh, my first job out of university, I was employed as an inventor by a company called Intellectual Ventures. And their view, their vision was to build this IP landscape and marketplace. And so they would pay me as a 21-year-old with more or less no clue what I was doing, quite a lot of money to invent things for areas that they thought would be impactful, like um, graphene technologies, some medical and surgical technologies, and ultimately food and agriculture technologies as well. And through that, I'm an inventor on around 40 patents, none of which have any real commercial utility. And that's the underlying reality of most of the patent system. There is a very, very small number that drive a lot of commercial utility. There has been both in the public sphere and in private over the last couple of years, a lot of people trying to overstate the value of specific patents um, in this space. Uh, and I think it is going to be far less impactful than a lot of these companies would like them to believe. Um, ultimately, the technology that we're using in cultured meat is an extension of technology that's been used in other industries like biopharmaceuticals and research for a very, very long period. There is relatively little that is distinctly new and novel and an even smaller subset of what is new and novel that's really, truly valuable. But a lot of people are trying to make claims and trying to tell stories that their patents are enormously valuable when they're simply not. And so I don't believe it's going to have as big of an impact on the landscape as a lot of these companies would like to believe or would like them to, uh, simply because of the nature of the technologies we're developing and scaling up and the relatively... A uh, relatively small step we're taking from what's been well established in other industry sectors. I'm mm. not sure if that's going to get me in trouble with my patent lawyers, but we'll find out when this airs. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So, um, well, what are some future plans for Val as a whole for 2023? Any geographical markets you're looking to expand into for now? 
So as I mentioned, we've been working with several food regulators. Um, right now, it's my hope that we'll be selling in Singapore, introducing cultured quail by the end of this year. That's, of course, contingent on that regulatory approval from the Singapore Food Agency. And we'll continue to work very openly and very transparently with that agency um, to achieve that milestone. Beyond that, in 2024, we're expecting to launch in both Australia and the US uh, as we start to move towards our goal of being the largest food company ever. All right, exciting plans ahead. Thanks a lot, George. That was George Papo, co-founder of FAO. Thank you very much for joining us on Money FM 89.3. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance.